Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. that uh, we can gather. Lord, what a blessing to gather with a bunch of other people that want to sing your praises, uh, it seems this morning at least, at the top of our lungs, and uh, so that you might be able to hear us, I guess. And, and Lord, uh, you've done a work within our hearts, and it's just so good for us, Lord, to let that out and to, uh, to acknowledge the goodness uh, that you have shown. And so, Lord, we've attempted to do that. Lord, I'm, you're worthy of far more praise than uh, perhaps even we mustered this morning. And uh, we thank you for revealing that truth to our hearts. Father, we do pray now that as we sit to hear from you, Lord, just like uh, the early disciples, they came, they gathered, Lord, at your feet in your presence there that they might hear from you. That's what we want to do. We want to come, we want to gather, we want to hear. Lord, we want to put away the distractions, focus our hearts our minds on what it is you have to say to us. We're asking, Lord, that the gift of your Holy Spirit that has been a shed, shed abroad in so many of our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us now. And, Lord, you would take these words, 3,000 years old on a page, and you'd make them applicable to us here in this moment in time. And so, Lord, uh, this is a holy book and a holy time. Cut down to the deepest places, we ask, in the great name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, we are in Proverbs 25, so you can turn there. We're about halfway through chapter 25. I didn't finish that chapter last time, so take a look there with me. You'll remember, first, we're, we're in verse 15, but take a look at verse 1 of chapter 25, because I'll remind you, we're in a new section of the book of Proverbs. 25.1 says, These are also the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, copied. And so again, as we were saying at that particular point in time, Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, but uh, in chapters 1 through 24, only about 400 of his 3,000 Proverbs are recorded for us. Those were specific ones that he put into a book form for his son. Now the men of Hezekiah who came two and a half centuries after Solomon, they are, were aware of additional Proverbs that he wrote, the other 2,600 or so that he wrote. And so they put down another 150 or so Proverbs written by Solomon, but not initially included in this book that we call the book of Proverbs. And so that's for us, chapters 25 through 29. And we looked at the first 14 of those that they jotted down last week. Today we start with verse 15, the 15th proverb that the men of Hezekiah recorded for us. And it says this, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. Now, oftentimes, our tendency to think is to think that if a person has power, then the only way that you can overcome that person is by exercising more power than that individual. And Solomon essentially says the opposite to us, that if you want to get someone to see things your way, it's not necessarily by beating them into submission. But in actuality, he reminds us that gentleness and that patience oftentimes is more effective. Now, you will notice in the verse there, it says, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded. They may not every time be persuaded, and in certain instances, it may not work. But oftentimes, we find that it does work. 
And so rather than screaming or yelling or resorting to various kinds of threats or even getting into it physically, Solomon reminds us here of the impact that gentleness and patience can have. You remember, maybe, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, you remember that passage, each of you? Let me give you some specifics. King David got into a conflict, conflict with a fellow by the name of Nabal. You remember that now? All right, so there's this fellow who is a wealthy businessman in the city of Carmel. 1 Samuel 25 kind of tells us this story. It tells us there that he had 3,000 sheep and 3,000 goats. That's not too bad. That was kind of bad, wasn't it? All right, anyway, Will said, don't do it. Don't make that joke. It'll be bad. And I said... Never mind. Anyhow, so in the course of time, this really rich guy has all these fields, 3,000 sheep, 3,000 goats. He's not out there in those particular fields. He has people that are out there in those fields. Well, another group of people that are out there in those fields are David. This is the period in David's life where he's out and about outside of, if you will, the palace when he was king and so on. And he's kind of out there with his band of men, his army of sorts out there. And so here is 3,000 men and all the, or excuse me, uh, goats and sheep and all of the men that are caring for them. And then also David's men, his soldiers and stuff are out there as well. And when raiders would come in and they would mess with this guy Nabal's goats and, and sheep and things like that, David, who's not really even involved, intervene and say, hey, get out of here. Leave the guy alone and stuff like that. All right, can you picture the scenario and the scene that is going on? So now time goes on, and David actually needs something from Nabal. David needs some food for some of his men in a particular circumstance. He had shown kindness to Nabal in the past. I'll go to Nabal. I'll ask for some kindness in return. And he goes to Nabal. He, Like I said, he asks for a little bit of assistance. And instead of Nabal saying, well, hey, you guys have been awesome for me, I never even asked you to be kind, but you were kind to me. What do you guys need? Nabal's response, and he says, David who? That's his response. Can you imagine? Now, you're a pretty strong guy. Yeah, it's like, you're a pretty strong guy. And this guy's acting like you're a nobody. Here's specifically what Nabal said. He said, who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. Who's David? David who? Well, to use the King James, David was none too happy with this particular circumstance. And he says, every man strap on your sword. Like we're going to kill people today, is what he says. All right, everybody just settle down here. But David says, let's go and let's kill some people. Every man strap on your sword. And every one of them did. And David himself also did. And about 400 men went up against this guy, Nabal. Now, I bring this up today in light of this proverb because I think Nabal's wife is going to demonstrate to us the wisdom of a verse like the one we read this morning that says, with patience, a ruler or a person in power may be persuaded. Because David and his men, they're men of war. They've gone to war with other nations and won. I'm pretty certain they could go to war against Nabal and they could win, right? Everybody is? Right, so they could easily go up against Nabal if they want to. He's not going to be too much of a problem for them. And so this woman, Nabal's wife, her name is Abigail. This woman, Abigail, then, she wisely, gently approaches David. And in humility, we read this in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 25. It says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now, she hadn't done anything wrong. 
But in humility, she comes. She said, look, on me alone be the guilt. Please let your servant me speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Verse 25, she tell, it tells us she essentially accepts some of the responsibility, some of the blame for the incident we see there. If I were there, I would have saw your, your men and I would have intervened. Verse 26 of chapter 25, she tells David that she desires good for him. Look, I want everything to work out well for you. Even though you're my husband's enemy, I want everything to work out well for you. And then in verse 27, she comes bearing a gift of food. The very thing that David had asked for, for his men, she comes and she brings them. And then finally in verse 28, she asks David for his forgiveness. Now she could have come in screaming and yelling and I'll show you and frying pans and and all this sort of stuff. But rather, she comes in gently with patience, with a soft tongue. And again, as the verse says, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded and with a a soft tongue may break a bone. Now, one last portion of that first Samuel passage. This is the result. This is what it did to David when he interacted with Abigail. It said, now David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand for as surely as the Lord the God of Israel lives who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning there would have not been left to Nabal as such one so much as one male David said you win so her gentleness her kindness or her humility all of those things won over David's heart and her actions changed David's planned course of action here and again she could have come screaming at him and defending her husband's foolishness and doing all sorts of things, but rather she doesn't do so. And her humility turns away David's wrath. It's calm, it's collected, it's soft, and it's persuasive language. And that's more likely to soften the heart of your opponent than screaming at them or yelling at them or trying to overcome them with force. And that's true of incidents involving the ruler as well as it is the person in the next cubicle over at work or your neighbor that you're having a little bit of difficulty. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, as we read earlier in Proverbs chapter 15. Okay? So if it works in that situation, it's going to work in the smaller situations of the guy next to you at work. Let's continue. Verse 16 says, If you have found honey, eat enough only for yourself, lest you have your fill of it, and you vomit it out. Yuck. All right. <laughs> but if you have found honey, eat enough only for you. Eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it out. Now, I told you before, I, I've never, I didn't know people eat honey, quite frankly. I thought you just put a little bit of honey into your tea if you have a cold. That's what I thought honey was created for. But I've, I've come to discover that people take spoonfuls of honey and enjoy it. Um, weirdos. Uh, but anyway... Apparently, according to those people, honey is great. Ooh, that was good. That was yummy. In our day, chocolate cake, you know, or vanilla ice cream or whatever it is you like um, so much so. So think of whatever it is you think is the most delicious delicacy and treat. Think of that and put that in the place of honey. But the idea is honey is great, but you have to be careful that you don't eat too much of that honey because if you overdo it, then you're going to make yourself sick. And so this proverb then, if you can picture that scenario, this proverb is a caution against the danger of excess. 
It's a caution against the danger of excess. Now catch this, even the excess of something that is totally morally neutral. Honey is not sinful. It's not even, well, it could be sinful. It's just morally neutral. It's just honey. It's a nice thing. It's a good thing. But this is a caution for us against the dangers of excess. Henry Ironside, a fellow I, I enjoy a lot to read, he said, is that, he said, what is legitimate and wholly proper in its place may prove detrimental to all spiritual growth if it is permitted to become the supreme controlling power of your life. He says, again, morally neutral, legitimate and wholly proper. And so to eat honey in moderation, that's good. I'm told it's even healthy, uh, people say. But taken to excess, it has the potential to make someone sick. Now, let's make some connections here. Watching a little TV or a movie, end of a day, you know, let's just wind down. Let's watch a little TV. Let's watch a movie or something. That could be, serve as a great way to relax. However, sitting and watching 10 hours of TV is not going to do you any good. You understand? It's a morally neutral thing, assuming that what you're watching is appropriate, all those kinds of things. So natural, morally neutral things, however pleasant they may be, they're permitted in their measure. But we have to guard ourselves from letting those things become the chief object before our souls. Exercise. Some people go way overboard with exercise. Exercise is good. Paul talks about it even in, this, in the New Testament there. You know, it's good that you're doing a little bit of bodily exercise. But some people, then all of a sudden, it's 42 hours a day. That's impossible, and yet somehow they do it. And it becomes this all-encompassing thing, and I can't hang out with people, and I can't talk to people because all I do is exercise. You've taken it too far. Now, you're probably saying, well, you haven't taken it far enough. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But mind your own business, okay? <laughs> Hobbies, pursuits, all of those things are great. Those things are wonderful. But if you take it too far where they become all-encompassing, then you no longer have the time, you no longer have the energy to pursue those things that are eternal, those things that you should really be pursuing. And so now your nice, morally neutral pursuit has become morally harmful, spiritually harmful in your life. And so again, Solomon says here, eat only enough lest you make yourself sick. And so just let the Lord, you know, Lord, search out my heart on that issue. And let him search out your heart and reveal some things. You know, maybe it's time to cut back on this. Maybe it's time to pull away from that. Verse 17 says, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. What a funny proverb. Alrighty, But a true one, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. And so just like something good like honey has to be guarded, if you will, with moderation, so too your presence in your neighbor's home should also be enjoyed with moderation. And so now in our day, we don't just stop by people's houses. Now it's weird and it's freaky. And you're like, who's at the door? Get the gun, you know, this kind of thing. Because we're nervous about people stopping by or whatever. But you know, assuming people want you to stop by, if you stop by sort of unexpected, you would expect people like, hey, how you doing? This is great. Come on in. This sort of thing. You stop by every single day, particularly right around dinner time. <laughs> when, you know, when you know they're going to say, please eat with us, you know, whatever. After a while, you start to become annoying. They'll say stay, but they don't really want you to stay. And so once in a while, your friends are genuinely excited to have you again and again and again. And people begin wondering, is this guy going to move in here or something? You know what I mean? And so be on your guard against such thing. Exercise moderation, even in something like that. Verse 18 says, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club. 
or a sword or a sharp arrow. Now, if somebody came after you with a war club, I don't even know what a war club is. You know, I think of Fred Flintstone or something, you know, with that, that big stick. Somebody comes after you with a war club or they come after you with a sharp sword or they're shooting arrows at you, well, then you can rightfully interpret this guy means to harm me. They're coming out to get me. They're coming out to do uh, seriously wound me or whatever. Now, so notice what Solomon says. He says, the person that bears false witness against their neighbor is no different from that person. And so if you were running after people with a war club or you're out there trying to shoot people with your arrow or stab them with your sword, they would be right to assume this guy is trying to kill me. This guy or gal, gals can do it too, is trying to harm me. Now what Solomon says, when you lie about your neighbor, you're coming at them with just as much destructive intent. You're coming at them to damage them just as if you came after them with a club or with your sword or whatever it may be. They're just as harmful and just as dangerous. And a lying word against a person can damage a person just as surely as if someone hit them with a club. Now, I imagine here most of us would never physically strike someone. I used to get in a lot of fights with people. I did not like to punch people. It just felt wrong. Wrestle shove their head into the ground, you know, things like that. But actual punches, that seems to go overboard or whatever. Most of us here are probably like that. We wouldn't actually strike people. But many of us here wouldn't have any problem lying against another person, would we? And Solomon equates those two things. And we do need to do so as well. And so we consider, we should consider the words that we speak, lest they be just as hurtful against that other person, Okay. Filed away next time you're tempted. Verse 19, trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Now, if you put something hard in your mouth and you chomp down on it, you're going to expect that your teeth are going to take over and do what they're intended to do. Now, if you have a bad tooth, you put it in your mouth, you chomp, you're like, ooh, because it shoots, the pain shoots at you. Your tooth, a bad tooth, is not able to do what it's supposed to do. Similarly, if you got a bum leg of some sort, it's a bad foot, you twisted your ankle, whatever it may be, and you, you get up quickly and you stand up forgetting that you would hurt your ankle, you put your foot down, your weight down on your foot, and it's going to give out. It's not going to do what it's designed to do. And that's what Solomon is talking about. You're expecting the tooth to do what it's going to do. You're expecting the foot, the leg, to do what it's going to do. And what do you expect? it's going to do. It's wounded. The, the tooth is wounded. The, the ankle is injured. And similarly, if you're expecting to be able to trust and rely upon a treacherous man, or the, the Bible also calls it other versions, an unfaithful man, a deceitful man, if you're expecting to rely on those people, don't. Because an unfaithful individual, a treacherous individual, is pretty much going to manifest that reality there. If a person is unreliable or deceitful in these instances here, you can expect they're going to be unreliable and deceitful in these instances over here. And so Solomon then says you need to be careful then who you put uh, to put your trust in such a person. Just like a person, again, with a wounded leg realizes that, right? You got an injury, you know your ankle is injured, and so you get up slowly you put your hand over on the couch or something like that so that your hand can help you get up. 
you walk kind of slowly and you make sure you're grabbing on to the next thing. All these things you're doing because you know your leg is a little weakened in that instance there. Well, if you have to get yourself into a situation involving a treacherous individual, you have to work with that person or something like that, be on your guard just as you would if you have a sore ankle. If your tooth is messed up, you chew on the other side until that side is messed up and this side goes away. All right, you see what I'm saying? And so you have to be on your guard in there. And failure to take such care, you're setting yourself up for a fall. And so you need to be on your guard. It's a word of wisdom, isn't it? Yeah, just something filed away. Verse 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now, last week, we learned the importance of speaking the right word at the right time. Remember, that was with verse 11, speaking the right word at the wrong time. Sometimes we can say the wrong word at the wrong time. Sometimes we can say the right word at the wrong time. But Solomon exhorted us, the Lord exhorts us, Be people that speak the right word at the right time. That means we have to be people of prayer. We have to know what the Lord would have us to say in those particular instances here. Now, here we see another example of that wisdom. Again, verse 20 says, Whoever sings a song to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like he pours vinegar on soda. You remember in the Old Testament, perhaps you don't. 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's a fellow by the name of Elkanah. And Elkanah comes onto the scene. He comes upon his wife, and she is crying. Her name is Hannah. And Hannah is crying because she has been unable to conceive or to to bear a child. And Elkanah's response is this. Don't cry. Aren't I better than ten sons, baby? That's, That's in the Hebrew. All right, that's what he says to her there. He says, don't cry. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Aren't I more to you than ten sons? Men, not very helpful. All right, not the thing to be saying in that particular circumstance. Women make the appropriate application for yourselves there. Certainly in that instance, she doesn't want to hear how great of a husband is. She's mourning this fact that she is unable to bear a child. And so this idea then of coming to a person that is in mourning or in a difficult place, you have to come to that with wisdom. And so this idea in the proverb of singing a song when you come across a person with a heavy heart, that's not helping. Now, sometimes people say, well, I was just trying to cheer them up. You're not cheering them up. I was just trying to get them to forget about their problems. They don't need to forget about their problems. You're not helping them in that particular instance. You're actually being, to use the proverb, you're like a person who comes up to someone out in the cold, I think of Lambeau Field in December where the Packers play, and it's freezing out there. I don't know why those people go to those games or whatever. It's on TV. Don't they know? You know, but they're out there in the cold. You're like a person who goes up to someone out there in the cold and removes their coat from them. You're not helping me. What would help me is if you put another coat on top of me. And so here now is this person that is in this place of mourning, and you're coming up to them trying to sing a song. That's not refreshing to them that's not helping them and the two scenarios that he gives the one is taking a garment off on a cold day the other one is putting vinegar on soda soda is meant to be pleasant you put vinegar on it it's not going to be any longer each one of those scenarios is is somewhat absurd why would you take a jacket off somebody that's already cold why would you pour vinegar on somebody that's looking to have a nice refreshing drink And so we look at that and we say, yes, that's absurd. Well, we need to also realize that coming and singing a song, like a happy song to someone, when they're in a place with a heavy heart, that's just as absurd. And so if you want to comfort a person that is in sorrow, 
then rather than just trying to get them to forget about it or cheer them up or whatever it may be, then you need to sympathize with that person. You need to show that person kindness. You need to look for ways to minister to that person's needs in instances through various in those instances through various acts of mercy. Those are the ways to bring comfort to that person that is in mourning. You don't try to pretend like nothing is happening or just get their mind on other things or try and cheer them up with some songs of mirth or something like that because you're not helping. You're actually hurting in those instances. And so if you're not sure what to say, it's okay to say nothing or in this case sing nothing and just sit alongside of that particular individual and let them know that you're there as opposed to trying to do something that will actually harm them. Does that make sense? All right, good. Verse 21 and 22. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will will reward you. Now, Jesus spoke to us about this idea of loving our enemies. That's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he spoke essentially the same idea. Paul the Apostle quotes this particular proverb in Romans chapter 12. If, if you, you don't have to go there, but if you ever look at Romans 12 and your Bible has like little titles to each of the section, the title probably says something like the marks of a true Christian. And so the, one of the marks of a true Christian is you will love your enemies, or at least you'll work to love your enemies there. And that's a mark of being a follower of Christ, to do a, what is directly opposed to your natural inclination regarding your, uh, your enemies. Because our natural inclination regarding our enemies is to get even and to show them you can't mess with me or I'm going to have you feel the same amount of pain that I felt. Or if we do pray for them, I know I should pray for my enemies. Lord, get them. You know? And so we pray for our enemies that God will get them or something like that. No, you're missing the, the point here. Jesus said, don't pray to, for God to get them. Pray that it would go well with them. That's hard to do, isn't it? I, could, I pray that for people I care for. That's hard for me to pray for my enemies, that it would go well for them. And that stands directly opposed to what I really want to do. And so Solomon, Jesus, Paul, when he quotes Solomon there, he says this, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them a drink. Again, the exact opposite of what we are inclined to do. The believer is called to express love for our enemies and to do so with actual acts of kindness for the purpose of winning them over. So not just, okay, I won't be mean or I won't say what I want to say, but rather to go, not just not do something, but to do something. Actual acts of kindness. And you say, well, how do you jump to that? I jump to that because in that Romans 12 passage, so Paul in Romans chapter 12, I think it's verse... 20, he quotes the proverb. Again, I'll read it. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Then he follows it up. The next verse is, and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so he says, do something. Overcome evil with good there. Now, it's really important, I think, that Paul added verse 21 there. Because if Paul didn't include verse 21, we would see verse 20 where it says heaping burning coals upon the head of your enemy. And in our warped thinking, we're like, ooh, I like the sound of that. I like putting burning coals in the the head of my enemy there. But then Paul goes on and he describes that as actually a good deed, which means, all right, what does that mean then? Because when I think about putting burning coals in someone's head, I think of hurting them. 
And so Paul must have something different in mind. And indeed, Paul does have something different in mind. The picture that both Solomon and Paul are making reference to has to do with that earlier practice in time of lending hot coals from your fire to another person so they can get their fire going. And so you can imagine, you can't run down to 7-Eleven and get a pack of matches or something like that. It would be difficult at times to get a fire going here. And so they would take a fire-resistant pot, oftentimes, many times, carried upon the head of an individual, and inside of there would be the hot coals. And one individual would make their way over to another, and they would say, here. Now, you can see doing that for a friend, but not for an enemy. And yet, that's exactly what Solomon and Paul and the Lord Jesus say that we should be doing. It's an act of kindness performed upon a person that is undeserving of that kindness. Somebody has said this, that the most effective way to get rid of an enemy is to make him your friend. The most effective way to get rid of an enemy is to make him your friend. That sounds really cute and kindergarten-y, doesn't it? But it's, it's great truth. And so this antithetical act of giving hot coals to someone who doesn't deserve it may have the impact of winning that person over and bringing full reconciliation. So you do this act of kindness for a person that is your enemy and is treating you as if they're your enemy, and you do this act of kindness for the person. Hopefully, it'll wake the person up, and they'll say, you know what, I'm sorry for all that I said before. And you have reconciliation. Matthew Henry said this, the way to turn an enemy into a friend is to act towards him in a friendly manner. And so you've got to ask yourself, do you want to get even with that person? Or do you want to solve the problem and mend the broken relationship? And you have to answer that question. What do you really want? What does the Lord really want in this particular instance? Because if you really want to bring healing, then you need to heed the words of Solomon here and Paul and the Lord Jesus. Amen? All right, not easy but what we're called to do. Verse 23 of the chapter says, The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue angry looks. The backbiting tongue. Some of your versions will say the gossiping tongue. The word is like the secret tongue, so it's the idea of where you're whispering behind somebody's back about a person. So the idea then is we're speaking about a a harmful word spoken behind another person's back or in secret. And that's why it's translated in some versions as gossiping. Now you need to track with Solomon here. Okay, so he says this. The north wind brings forth rain. The backbiting tongue brings forth an angry look in the person that uh, is receiving it. Or Now I will add this. At least it should. All right, so the north wind is supposed to come in and it's going to bring forth the rain. The backbiting tongue, the response that we should get to a backbiting tongue, we go to someone gossiping, you want to hear some juicy ones? They should look at you and be like, no, I don't want to hear some juicy ones. They should get a look on your face that registers, I'm not interested in hearing this. I'm not interested in participating in your sin with you. That should be the look that comes across on your particular faith in the, face in those instances. But rather... When somebody comes and says, hey, I got a juicy one, how do most of our faces register? Ooh, tell me. And we get all excited. We want to hear it. So if I lean in and my eyes get big and I say, ooh, tell me what you got, does that register I disagree with the idea of gossiping? Not at all. And so what it should be is as the north wind should bring forth the rains, the gossiping tongue should 
bring forth an angry countenance on our particular faces, something that communicates I'm not interested in doing this because gossip is sin. Even so, receiving gossip is a sin. That's important for us to understand. One commentator, he made this really helpful comparison. He said, the receiver of stolen goods is as guilty as the thief. So it is with the one who gives encouragement to another to relate scandalous stories. And so if you know a person stole a whole bunch of stuff and they brought them over to you and now you're using them as your own, the police are coming to your house too. And the detectives are coming over to your house. You're just as involved. You didn't go and knock off that store, but you're just as involved because you received those stolen goods that you knew were stolen goods. Same thing with gossip. And so the person who does the gossiping and the person who receives the gossiping, both of those are responsible in that particular situation there. And so it's our responsibility. You want to be a person of wisdom? You want to walk in wisdom? You want to walk in a way that the Lord can bless the life that you're living? Well, then you need to take this admonition here and discourage yourself or remind yourself uh, to stay away from receiving the sin of gossip, okay? Verse 24, it's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. We saw the same exact words in chapter 21, verse 9, and there were very similar words. I believe it was back in chapter 16. Same idea, same message. And so something's going on with the men of Hezekiah and their wives. They felt we needed to know these words. Alrighty, and so we've already talked about this. Better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Go back and listen to the tape. We talked about it at that time. Verse 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Now certainly, this is true regarding any bit of good news that makes its way to our ears. We're waiting all day. We're listening. It seems like it's taking forever to get to us. And finally, we hear and we kind of rejoice in that good news. Oh my gosh, did you hear? Well, certainly, and most especially, that is true when the good news is the good news. And each of us here that name the name of Christ, every one of us that is here that is a believer, and I don't pretend to think everyone is, but for those of us here that are believers, we've heard the good news. And it has, if you will, come from a far country. And it's a glorious good news. that This is the good news, that though we are yet sinners, Christ died on our behalf. And as John Newton said, that though we are great sinners, there is a greater Savior still. That's the gospel. And the gospel is like cold water to a thirsty soul. To that person that is, in, that is desperately in need of a drink, the gospel is like that to our soul when we're handed that cup of cold water. And for those of us that have received that drink, we know that at just the right time, I imagine all of our stories are a little bit different, but they're also quite similar that there was a particular point in time where the Lord had been doing a stirring work, a drawing work in our hearts, and we became this parched individual. We were searching for something that would satisfy us. We didn't even know necessarily what it was. And at just the right time, the Lord entered into our lives and we were refreshed. And the thirst was removed. It was miraculously quenched in a way that nothing else had been able to do so. And for some of us weeks, some of us years, trying to fill everything in there, this will fill me up. This will satisfy me. This will quench my thirst. Nothing does. And then Jesus enters in. 
And like that woman at the well, we come to discover. You know that woman at the well? It's found in John chapter 4. And she, he, Jesus is there. He meets her. She speaks with him. They interact with one another. And she begins to discover these words. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of the water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. No better news than that, is there? That your sins, though they be as scarlet, as it says, that they can be forgiven and washed as white as snow. And I would say this, look, if you're here and you have never received the gift of eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ, I'll tell you this, eternal life doesn't begin when you cross over, when you die. But eternal life, a swelling up that takes place in the heart, it begins the moment you come into relationship with Jesus Christ here on the earth. That's everlasting life. That's eternal life, the abiding presence of Christ. And if you've never experienced that, you have no idea what it is I'm talking about, yeah, I go to church. It's not as exciting as you're making it sound. Well, perhaps you've never met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And before you leave today, come talk with me. We'll get you started in a relationship with Jesus. Verse 26 goes on. It says, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain. Now, if you were thirsty, as I am, and in search of a drink, you would be very disappointed Uh, to come to a spring of water and find that that is, rather than being clean and pure and something that you can drink, is brown and muddied. I imagine the Delaware River, some of you crossed over to get here today, I imagine it's real brown and muddy because of all the storms that we had yesterday. And so imagine from a distance you're dying of thirst, or quote-unquote dying of thirst, and you come to, ahead of you, you see, oh, there's a river up there. And you're going to run down there. You can't wait to just start lapping up some of that water and to get there and to see that it is brown and it is muddied. Or if you come to this fountain and you put your little finger on the little button to shoot the water out there and it comes out all rust-colored and brown, you're going to back away from it and you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be let down. You expected something from that spring. You expected something from that particular fountain here. You expected it to accomplish a particular purpose and it didn't. And it didn't come through from you. And those water sources became useless to you, unable to do that which they were designed to do. They were designed to bring refreshment, but they can't because they're brown and they're muddied and they're polluted there. Now, we can understand that. Now, here's the comparison that Solomon makes. He takes something we can readily understand, like the fountain and the spring water, and he compares it to a compromising righteous man or woman. And we see that in the second portion of the verse there. He says it's a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Now, Jesus called us as his disciples to be the salt of the earth. Matthew Matthew 5, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he called his disciples to be the light of the world. Now, in the, we all know what light does. In the first century, salt had a little bit of a different uh, purpose than it does in our day. It still accomplishes its purpose in certain, certain places. But in the early first century, salt primarily had two purposes. One was to preserve food, and the other, like it does today, is to enhance flavor. Preserve food and enhance flavor. And if you think of that, when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, you are a preservative in so many ways. As you read through the book of Revelation and the book of 1 Thessalonians, what happens when the church is removed from the scene? Literally, all hell breaks loose on the earth. The church, the believers, we are a preservative. 
And so in the communities that we go, the businesses that we go, our families, our home lives, even those of us that are married to unbelievers, your house is blessed because of your presence in there. And as you're seeking to walk in righteousness in your work environment, in your home environment, in your community, whatever it may be, in our nation, certainly even in this world, you play a part in slowing down the advancement of moral and spiritual decay. Believe that. That the believer, and especially as we're gathered together, we play a part in the slowing down of the advancement of moral and spiritual decay. And how often the church is the one that enters in and takes a stand against injustice and unrighteousness in a society. How often it's the church and believers just trying to live their lives, raise their family, etc., shed light on things to call to wickedness, if you will, to light. And so people see that and they're like, you know, it's wrong. It is wrong. And so on. So that's salt as a preservative. Salt also serves as a flavor enhancer. And I would hope as a follower of Christ that you enhance the flavor, if you will, of life in this world. That people are glad that you work where you work because you're a blessing to be around. And, you know, you're a supportive individual and you're a good guy and you don't cut corners and you're a faithful employee and a faithful friend and all of those things. I would hope that you enhance your neighborhood and your place of work and your community and so on. That places where you, that you come in contact with, those places are different because of your presence in that particular situation. Now, let me make this connection. And so like a fountain was put in place to provide a cool, refreshing drink, so too I would suggest to you, you were put in place so that you could enhance and preserve the place that you were placed, if you will. That you were called to enrich the places with goodness and cause God's work to stand out from the normal way of doing things in those particular instances. That's why God put you there. And how sad if you were placed there, like a fountain was placed to refresh people, if you were placed there but you didn't do what it is God called you to do. And it's not uncommon for righteous individuals to shrink down or to even give way, as it says, before the wicked. That's the idea there being to compromise. And so here God placed you in a particular business, but now you begin to compromise. The place is no different that you as a believer are there than it would be if you weren't there. But if you stood up for righteousness and you took a stand for righteousness, you'd be making an impact. And so either we keep quiet because of intimidation or we give ourselves to compromise because everyone else is doing it. When good men and women fail to stand up for that which is right, they become like a muddied spring and a polluted well. Impure water benefits no one, and neither does a person given, that's given to compromise and to wickedness. And so what's the word then? You be what God intended you to be. God's placed you in your life circumstances to be a salt and a light in a dark and a dying world. And so be encouraged. Be that that he designed you to be. Stand for truth. Refuse to give in to compromise. Enhance the world that you live in and allow the Lord to work through you and use you for eternal purposes. Otherwise, you're just a polluted spring in that instance. Amen, friends? This is really important. That is really important. All right? Take a stand for righteousness. And if you're weak, ask the Lord for his strength. Connect with other believers so that they can be an encouragement to you as well. Continuing verse 27, back to honey. It says, it's not good to eat much honey, 
nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So again, honey's good, morally neutral. But if you eat too much of it, you'll become sick. That good thing then, too much of it ruins the experience. It, te- it turns someone's stomach to a sickened one. And we all kind of figure that out. We get that. So let me ask you this. Then why then do you sit down and eat a whole bag of potato chips? I know you do. Alrighty. Yeah, I know if I eat a whole bag of potato chips, I'm going to feel like bad later. I know if I eat a whole bag of potato chips, my wife's going to yell at me later. Um, I know all these things, and yet I do it anyway. I don't understand myself. Now, knowing that, I take steps to make sure I don't do that sometimes if I'm feeling good. And so when I'm upstairs and I get the bag of potato chips, I put a reasonable amount, a heaping amount, but reasonable, into a bowl, and I leave the bag upstairs, and when I'm done the bowl, Now I have to wrestle. Do I want to eat more chips or do I want to get off my lazy butt and go get the chips? And usually my lazy butt wins and I stay right where I'm at. You see how I'm going? I'm being very personal here with you as well. And so we put steps in place to protect ourselves from making that that error, making that mistake. Because we have to tell our flesh no in those particular instances. Now, Solomon gives us another place where our flesh is going to say, just eat one more chip. Just have another spoonful of honey. Where our flesh is going to be calling for something that our flesh doesn't really want to be calling for. It's not good that our flesh is calling for that. And it's the second half of the proverb. It says, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So the idea here is when your flesh begins to whisper into your ear and say things like, hey, you're pretty something. Or when your flesh begins to say, you know, These people around here, I don't think they realize how awesome you are. You should start reminding people of how awesome you are. You deserve, we talked about this last few weeks ago, you deserve the best seat. Those are instances where you have to tell yourself, no, no, don't say that. Don't boast about yourself, all of those things. You need to remind yourself of this, that the only one that was ever truly worthy of being exalted is the one who emptied himself, as it says in the book of Philippians, that he humbled himself and became obedient even to the form of a servant. Now, there may be times when you are, to be a, when you are exalted, okay? And so I'm not saying there that you have to necessarily say, no, 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 or whatever it may be. I'm not saying that. There may be times where you are to be exalted. The boss comes in and said, you know what? You've been doing a great job. We want to give you a promotion. Okay, so now you're going to be exalted. Now, we're going to give you an, a reward or an award, I should say. We're going to give you an award for your services there. And so make sure you put your best suit on. You're going to come up and you're going to receive an award. That's okay. There's nothing wrong necessarily with being exalted in those instances. Where you need to be on your guard, however, is protecting yourself from being the one doing the exalting or seeking to exalt yourself or, as it says in the proverb, seeking your own glory. One of my favorite Proverbs is from chapter 27. It says this, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. I feel like I quote that often while I'm watching professional sporting events. And as people are running around in the end zone and they're doing their thing, I think, you know, you look like an idiot. You look like a fool. Let somebody else praise you. Let other people pat you on the back instead of you standing there doing one of these to everyone. That's just how I feel. I'm sorry about it here. Some people... They accomplish things that cause the rest of us to just say, wow, that, that, was, that was awesome. That was pretty great. Great job you did there. But when that person then starts working the room 
and saying, hey, did you see what I did? Do you see how awesome I am? What do you think about that? Or they do it more subtly, and you know that, right? They're just waiting for someone to say, oh, did something happen? Well, since you've asked, yes, I'm awesome, you know, or whatever. And when they start doing that, before we were like, hey, man, awesome job. That was fantastic. When they start tooting their own horn, you're like, okay, all right. And you're not interested anymore. You lose respect for that particular individual. So I'll throw this out there with you. We'll look at it again later on in Proverbs. Let another praise you for your job well done and not your own mouth. Okay? Final verse this morning, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I would dare say that perhaps one of the most important, if not the most important character trait or virtue a person can possess is the character trait of self-control. Because the person with self-control will keep themselves from giving in to temptation. And the person with self-control will be preserved from laziness, which Solomon has talked a ton about in this book. The person with self-control will keep themselves from seeking their own glory. Even if they want to do that, they'll keep themselves from it because they can exercise self-control. And the man or woman without self-control leaves themselves completely exposed to all of those things that I just described and more. To the temptations of the enemy, whether that be the enemy of the world, the enemy of our flesh, or even the enemy of the devil. The person without self-control is wide open for those temptations to come against them. Now, society can put restraints on us. And so a lot of us, we don't do certain things because I don't want to go to jail. And so society puts certain restraints on us, and society, if you will, controls us. Parents oftentimes put restraints on their children and control them so they can mold them and grow them up into upstanding individuals of society. But ultimately, until we learn to put restraints on ourselves, we have never truly grown to full maturity. Make sense? And so the person then that does not have self-control then, they're like a city without walls. Now, an ancient city, if you were going to build an ancient city, the first thing you did was found a water source, somewhere where there was a water source. The second thing you did was build a wall around it, big enough for what you anticipate this city is going to become, so that the people that live inside of that city haven't even built homes yet. But the people that live inside of that city would then be safe, particularly at night when everyone goes to sleep and no one's paying attention. So the first thing you find that water source, the second thing you do is you put the wall around it. It was that significant, that important. And Solomon says that's what self-control is like. Cities without walls were exposed each day and night, and so too are people without self-control. And so then the person who has never learned to discipline his life, they're like an undefended city. They're open to every kind of attack. They're exposed to every kind of temptation. Now, the New Testament tells us that self-control is a fruit of God's Holy Spirit. And so as God works in our life, God's Spirit works in our life, a fruit of that work is the virtue, the trait of self-control. We read that in Galatians chapter 5. What you need to be careful is you might read that and you're like, well, great. Go ahead, God, do it. You know, like God, pow, you got it. And last night I had no control. Now I have self-control for the rest of my life. That's not how the Lord do it. It's a work. It's a fruit, I should say, that is produced. That's a work that the Lord does, and this is a fruit that is produced from that work. It's something that grows in the process of time. And so the Holy Spirit will create that fruit in the life of a person as the Holy Spirit takes that person 
through the process of creating that fruit in their life. And so as you respond in obedience to each area that the Holy speaks into your life, self-control begins to grow. That fruit begins to grow. And increasingly, less and less are you giving into those temptations, and less and less are you doing what you want when you want, but rather, increasingly, you're saying yes to his desire and no to your own. That's how the Holy Spirit creates in us the virtue of self-control. And so I would say this, and I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but I'll say this, you should make self-control one of your chief aims in this life. You should make self-control one of the chief aims in this life. It's that important, and it will benefit you in every other area of your life as well. Amen? I'm done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, just simple truths with great application, Lord, that I think each one of us can apply to many different areas of our lives. And, and I imagine many of us sitting here for processing through these things, we have certain things in our mind where that that word of truth just fits perfectly. And we thank you for that. And no wonder your word is called living and active. And so, Lord, continue to delve down deep into areas of our life. Search us out. Lord, reveal these things. Lord, give us the courage to walk in truth. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Bless our fellowship, Lord, even as we finish up singing these last few songs to you. Lord, bless our fellowship as we go from this place. And be honored, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.